The rest of you can turn in your Bibles to uh, the book of Ephesians. We will uh, be, uh, we're almost done with our sermon series on the armor of God, and uh, we're going to be continuing that this morning in the book of Ephesians. Um, Well, at the end of Jesus' life, right before he is, uh, or right as he is being arrested, there's a scene in the Gospel of Matthew uh, that, that describes this place in which Jesus is being arrested. And it says this, and, he, and even as Jesus said this, Judas, one of the twelve disciples, arrived with a crowd of men armed with swords and clubs. They had been sent by the leading priests and elders of the people. The traitor, Judas, had given them a prearranged signal. You will know which one to arrest when I greet him with a kiss. So Judas came straight to Jesus. Greetings, Rabbi. He exclaimed and gave him the kiss. Jesus said, my friend, go ahead and do what you have come for. Then the others grabbed Jesus and arrested him. But one of the men with Jesus pulled out his sword and struck the high priest's slave, slashing off his ear. Put away your sword, Jesus told him. Those who use the sword will die by the sword. Don't you realize that I could ask my father for thousands of angels to protect us? And he would send them instantly. But if I did, how would the scriptures be fulfilled that describe what must happen now? Then Jesus said to the crowd, Am I some dangerous revolutionary that you have come with swords and clubs to arrest me? Why didn't you arrest me in the temple? I was there teaching every day. In this scene, Jesus rebukes his disciple, Peter. We find out from another gospel, it's Peter, who uh, always, Peter is the one that kind of steps in it first. He just does what the rest of us might be thinking of doing. He just does it. And Peter has a sword and he seeks to defend Jesus and slices off uh, the high priest's servant's ear. And Jesus says, put away your sword. Those who use the sword will die by the sword. And he says, there's really no need for it. I could ask, and God would deliver us. But I am here to do what God has called me to do. And then he has this exchange with those who have come with swords and clubs. And he says, wait a second. Do, like, I know that he had a sword, but I rebuked him for having a sword. Have you not been following us? Like, I'm going around teaching, and you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me. There's something incredibly powerful about this moment because it it declares for us a couple of things. Jesus says, okay, we're not going to build the kingdom by swords. And yet, he also is declaring that what he is doing is so radical and revolutionary that those who oppose him will come with swords. They actually... Uh, understand that what he is doing will upend the world in his teaching. But it it comes to, the reason I bring all this up this morning is, I want to ask us this morning, what is the Christian's true weapon? We've been looking at uh, this armor of God. We've been walking through all of these pieces uh, that Paul is telling us that we are to equip ourselves with for our battle against Satan and all the forces of evil in the world. But we finally move into what could be considered an offensive weapon, the sword of the Spirit. But what is this weapon that we have? Because Jesus tells us, right, to live by the sword is to die by the sword. And so what will we live by um, as Christians? What will be our true weapon? So um, we're going to read through Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 17, as we prepare to get into this one little spot, get the whole context. A final word, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. 
Put on all of God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm against all strategies of the devil. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. Therefore, put on every piece of God's armor so that you will be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil. Then after the battle, you will, be stand, will still be standing firm. Stand your ground, putting on the belt of truth and the body armor of God's righteousness. For shoes, put on the peace that comes from the good news so that you will be fully prepared. In addition to all these, hold up the shield of faith to stop the fiery arrows of the devil. Put on salvation as your helmet and take the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. We have this picture of a fully armed, uh, fully armored Christian wearing all of these pieces of armor as we've been talking through, right? The, the metaphorical pieces of armor that Paul is describing in order to protect ourselves. And finally, Paul gets to the end of this and says, put on salvation as your helmet and take the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So the true weapon For the Christian is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now, to understand, we need to remind each other of what Paul has said beforehand, of what our true enemy is. Who is our true enemy? Well, Paul has described it as uh, both Satan and all of the forces of evil in the world. And throughout the book of Ephesians, he's also talked about the reality of our fallen sinful nature. It's these three things that are often called the trinity of evil. Um, the Satan, the flesh, or our sinful nature, and the world. These are the three things that we're up against in the world. And, and by the world, we, we don't mean the people of the world, right? Because uh, Paul's already told us. Paul said, uh, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against evil rulers and authorities, right? And so we're talking about the systems and structures of the world which are in opposition to God's kingdom, the world. Certainly we understand who Satan is, right? He's our adversary, the accuser, the one who would bring accusations against us, trying to remind us of our sin in order to condemn us. And then the flesh, our sinful nature, right? Paul has said to put off our sinful nature, to put it to death, because it's no longer who we are. And yet we continue to battle with it. And so we need to understand it as our enemy. So therefore, if those are our enemy, Satan, the flesh, and the world, how is the sword of the Spirit to be our true weapon? How are we to understand this? Well, first, I think we need to see what false weapons we try to take to go against these three. The first is Not the sword of the spirit, but just simply the sword, right? The reality is I read that passage at the beginning because the reality is that Christians throughout history have sometimes taken the sword, not the sword of the spirit, but the actual sword in defense of God's kingdom. Violence and power are not weapons that the Christian ought to use. This is a false weapon because, well, first of all, right, it's useless, Jesus told us it's useless. Wait, like, you think a little sword, Peter, is going to do anything? I could call down thousands of angels, which begs the question, why didn't you, Jesus? Like, why don't you stop violence against the church? Why didn't you stop violence against yourself? 
God, you could in this moment stop all persecution of Christians throughout the world. There are those who cannot worship freely because they face persecution. As we were praying before the service, Vince was praying for the persecuted church and reminded that there are those who will take the sword against the church. Now, what are we to do in that? Are we to go to those places and equip them with military equipment so that they can fight back? Jesus says, no. No, that you live by the sword, you're going to die by the sword. The weapon cannot be violence. Now, certainly, violence cannot work against Satan, right? That's not going to work. Against the world, we're really not going to be able to do anything because our battle is not against flesh and blood, right? And so we cannot bring a, a, a sword against it or any sort of violence against it. And certainly, Paul has described for us, the reality is that we cannot bring any sort of violence against our own sinful nature, against our flesh, in order to overcome it, right? Any sort of beating myself up metaphorically or physically in order to pursue holiness is not going to work. It just simply has no power over our sinful nature. Punishing ourselves in that way has no power. Now, uh, that's not super controversial for us to say, right? Like throughout church history, there are seasons in which the church has taken the sword, and that was wrong. Um, We generally understand that that's not good, but there are other things that we view as weapons against these things more subtly, more subtly. One, I think, that's very subtle. This is like total contrast, all right? So just prepare yourself. Total contrast from like violence in the sword, right? To, I think entertainment is something that we see as a weapon against the world, Satan, and the flesh that we use. Now, hear me out, all right? Hear me out. Uh, I think we use it to dull the enemy, to distract ourselves, to distract our flesh. We, rather than clinging to God's word, as we're going to talk about in a moment, when we are faced with difficulty, what do we do? We run to entertainment. We see this as a way to get away from the struggles of the world. Now, again, these are not all uh, equal false weapons, right? I'm not saying that all entertainment is evil, right? And I'm not saying it's equivalent to taking up the sword, right? Okay, so hear me out. Um, But what I am saying is this cannot be our strategy for dealing with the brokenness of the world. And it's not really our stated strategy. No one sets out to say like, hey, my Netflix subscription, I put it under the category in my budget for fighting Satan, right? Like that's not what people do. But it's kind of our de facto strategy because it's what we do when we encounter brokenness. We run to entertainment. Now, I'm not speaking like mainly, I wish we had that shield up here still, right? This is mainly about me. This is what I do, right? So I'm just guessing maybe you guys are all holier than I am, but I'm guessing that some of you do this also. Oh, all right. Some acknowledgement. I like it. All right. Okay. I'm not alone. But we see this as a way to, to, to go after these things because we don't want to deal with the brokenness of the world or in our heart. But there's another way in which we see entertainment as something of a strategy against Satan in the world. We actually see entertainment sometimes as a strategy for evangelism, a strategy against the world. 
We can try and convince the world to follow Jesus by entertaining them into the kingdom of God. If we can just have uh, a slick production or uh, by the humor of our pastor, clearly that's not your strategy here, or by the charisma of our church and her leaders, we can do this and we can do it as good as the world can. And we can convince them to follow Jesus by entertaining them. It doesn't work, does it? It it simply does not actually transform anyone. Now, I'm not saying that media is unimportant or anything like that, right? Media is shaping and forming the world, and we do, as Christians, need a presence in that to deliver God's word, right? I mean, we do have a website as a church. I'm not advocating that we take it down, right? That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that can never be the thing, the strategy, the thing we are missing, the one thing that we just need to get better at this thing, and God will show up in mighty ways. Another false weapon that we often use against the world is politics. If we could just get the right candidate or the right policy, again, I'm not saying that this is unimportant, clearly. I mean, we talk about things here all the time that intersect with politics, right? Your faith has to influence how you deal with these things. And we're going to talk about those issues over and over again. But the reality is, if politics becomes the strategy of the Christian to fight against Satan in the world, we have lost it. It cannot be the thing. It cannot be the weapon of the church against the forces of evil because the reality is it's not going to work. I mean, history just bears this out. It's not going to work. Somehow, things will make progress and then there will be more corruption and all sorts of other things, right? It has no power to transform the heart. So politics cannot be our weapon of choice as Christians. Material things or money cannot be our weapon of choice. This works personally and also as a church. If we just had this, if we just had a little bit more, we would be okay and we would be able to overcome any sort of brokenness we're experiencing in our own lives personally or as a church. If we just had a little bit more, if we could just get over this hump, if we could just afford this thing, then we'd be okay. There are many other ways in which we kind of go against these things, but what I want to do is change uh, course here and focus on what does Paul actually mean when he says that the weapon of choice for the Christian is the sword of the Spirit. What is this that we are to take up against Satan, the world, and the flesh? The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Okay, so I'm going to show you a couple of different places in the Scriptures now. Uh, I got really excited when I was working on this message. Uh, the, the idea of the connection between the Spirit of God, the sword of the Spirit, and the Word of God is something that I think is incredibly important for Christians to understand. What is the connection between God's Spirit and God's Word? And how do we see this play out in Scripture so that we can understand what Paul means that we're to be equipped with moving forward? Okay, so I'm going to show you a couple of connections here throughout the Scriptures. So Ephesians 5 uh, so remember, we've been in the book of Ephesians for a while. Ephesians five eighteen and 20 says, Don't be drunk with wine because that will ruin your life. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs among yourselves and making music to the Lord in your hearts and give thanks for everything to God the Father 
in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Be filled with the Holy Spirit, and then these things are gonna come with it, right? These things are gonna flow out of that, okay? Remember that list that's flowing out of being filled with the Spirit. We're gonna flip over to Colossians 3. Now remember, uh, Colossians and uh, Ephesians are very similar books, right? Very similar books. So, let the message about Christ in all its richness fill your lives. Another translation says, let the word of Christ dwell in you, right? Teach and counsel each other with all the wisdom he gives. Sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to God with thankful hearts. And whatever you do or say, do it as a representative of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. All right, now remember those results, they look the same, don't they? They're the same list. What it means to live out this life is gonna look the same, But in one letter, Paul says, be filled with the Spirit. In the other letter, he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. You see the connection? Being filled with the Spirit, letting the word dwell in you. They work together. The Spirit of God and the word of God work together, right? The sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. All right, John 14. But when the Father sends the advocate as my representative, that is the Holy Spirit, he will teach you everything and will remind you of everything I have told you. This is where Jesus is speaking to his disciples. He's speaking to the apostles and he's saying, what's going to happen when I leave is the Holy Spirit's going to come, right? And he actually says, he he says crazy things. He says, it will be better for you that I go away because you get the Holy Spirit, right? How often have you thought in your life, If I could just see Jesus, it would be better. Like, man, it'd be so much easier to believe if I had been there and had seen him do these things. Jesus says, no, you have the better thing. You get the Holy Spirit to live in you. You have the better experience. The Holy Spirit's gonna come. Now, what does he say specifically to the apostles? He's gonna teach you everything and will remind you of everything I have told you. Well, what did they do with that? They wrote it down in the scriptures. We have the result of that promise in our Bible, right? The the New Testament is written words from the apostles and their representatives who are writing either letters to churches or the gospels, which are accounts of the life of Jesus. This is the promise that the Holy Spirit has given He brought to remembrance all that Jesus had taught, and now you have that very thing in front of you in God's word. John 15, 7, Jesus says this in that same section, but if you remain in me and my words remain in you, you may ask for anything you want and it will be granted. This whole section, John 14 to 17, I've talked about it a lot here. It's one of my favorite sections of scripture. Use that phrase again. Did it last week too about a different one. It's fine. It's fine. Don't worry about it. Uh, So 14 through 17 here, but Jesus says a lot of really important things about what the Holy Spirit is going to do. He says in different places, the Holy Spirit will be in you. And he says, I'm going to come with you. And he says, you're not going to be orphans. Well, orphans is the language of children and father, right? So he says, the father's going to be in you. I won't leave you. I'm going to be in you. But who's actually going to be in you? The Holy Spirit's going to be in you. The Holy Spirit will come and be in you. And where the Holy Spirit is present, the Father and the Son are also present. It's how the Trinity works. 
right? They come together. They mutually indwell one another, right? Wherever one is present, the others are also present. So if you get the Holy Spirit, you get God. And what does Jesus say specifically? He says, if you remain in me and I in you, and my words remain in you. See the connection again between the word of God and the spirit of God? If the word of God remains in you, well, the Holy Spirit is what's going to be in you, right? So there's this connection between the spirit of God and the word of God. All right, one last one. Second Peter 1, 16 through 21. This is Peter, the apostle Peter, talking um, in, or writing this letter. And he says, for we... We were not making up clever stories when we told you about the powerful coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We saw his majestic splendor with our own eyes when we received, or when he received honor and glory from God the Father. The voice from the majestic glory of God said to him, this is my dearly loved son whom, who brings me great joy. We ourselves heard that voice from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. He's talking about when Jesus is transfigured before them, right? They're up on the mountain. It's just Peter Uh, John and James up there with Jesus and God reveals to them a little bit of Jesus's glory. He just pulls back the curtain just a little bit. And Peter is just like, I I, I can't remember which gospel it is, but in one of them, they're like, Peter started talking basically because he didn't know what else to do, right? He's like, ah, let's set up some tents. Let's stay here. This is great, right? He has no idea what to do because he's so overcome with glory. So he says this, right? We're not making this up. We saw it. We're there. This is an eyewitness account. Now, here's what's crazy, right? This is what he says. Because of that experience, we have even greater confidence in the message proclaimed by the prophets. You must pay close attention to what they wrote, for their words are like a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns, and Christ, the morning star, shines in your heart. Above all, you must realize that no prophecy in Scripture ever came from the prophet's own understanding or from human initiative. No, those prophets were moved by the Holy Spirit and they spoke from God. What Peter says is, I saw this incredible experience of Jesus. And you know what it made me do? Trust my Bible. That's not really the, the, the description we often hear when someone has an incredible sort of ecstatic religious experience. They want to lean into that experience. What Peter says is, no, no, that experience showed me, trust your Bible. The prophets were right. I have even greater confidence in the prophets because of my experience. And he says, nothing comes about in Scripture on their own. The Holy Spirit Right, the, the language says that the Holy Spirit carried along their words. So the prophets really wrote, we read it already this morning in Advent, right? Isaiah really wrote those words and they're really about Jesus and the Holy Spirit really worked in the midst of it to make it what it was supposed to be, right? That's what we believe about the scriptures is that they are 100% a production of man, right? Isaiah really wrote it. He didn't just dictate it. He really wrote it. But they're also 100% the production of the Holy Spirit, production of God. They are without error in that. So the Holy Spirit moves and speaks uh, speaks for God in the scriptures. And Peter says, I have great confidence in them because of this. Now, in that same book, at the end, Peter says, so 
remember the stuff that Paul wrote. Some of it's really hard, right? So if you've ever read Paul and you're like, man, this doesn't make any sense. Peter is like, yep, that's true. It's hard. He just admits it. He's like, this is really hard. And he says, and people have taken that and twisted it like they do the other scriptures. So what Peter says is what Paul is writing is the same as what the prophets wrote. So what he says here about the, the word of God is that it is more trustworthy than the experience I had. It's more trustworthy than anything. I saw heaven open up and say, this is my son. And I trust what Paul is writing to you as scripture. I have confidence in it. And you can experience Jesus by it. This is what we have in the word of God. This is really important. So when we talk about what the spirit of God is doing through the word of God, there's this connection between the Holy Spirit and God's word. Now, how are we to use that? How are we to use that as a weapon, right? Because it's the sword of the spirit. What are we to do with it? Well, first of all, we can use that against Satan, right? If we look at our three enemies, Satan, the world, and the flesh, we can use it against Satan. Do you remember the temptation of Jesus? How does Jesus answer Satan when Satan tempts him over and over again? He uses the word of God. He responds with the word of God. He knows the scriptures, and so he is able to answer the accusations and the temptations of Satan by the scriptures. Now, here's the tricky part. Satan, in one of those, quotes scripture to him. So it's not just the words. Trust me, Satan knows the Bible better than you do. He knows it better than you do and knows how to twist it to confuse you and to lead you astray. It's not simply about knowing the words, but knowing the spirit of God and knowing the word of God, right? We need to know how to listen for the voice of Jesus in God's word and recognize that as opposed to Satan using God's word to tempt us away from him. How do we know that? Well, we we know it by the character of God, right? We know it by the character of God and by the character of Satan. Revelation 12, 10 and 11 says this, Then I heard a loud voice shouting across the heavens, It has come at last, salvation and power, and the kingdom of our God, and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters has been thrown down to earth, the one who accuses them before our God day and night. And they have defeated him by the blood of the lamb and by their testimony. Uh, Or uh, some translations say by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives so much that they were afraid to die. The word of their testimony. You see, by the word of God, they defeat Satan, the accuser. So how are we to understand when Satan is using scripture against us or Jesus is reminding us of truth? Well, if we're feeling accusation, It's not Jesus, because that's what Satan does, right? Conviction by the Holy Spirit and accusations are very different, right? Very different. Conviction by the Holy Spirit is very specific and gentle and kind. Accusations from Satan are very vague. They go at who you are as a person, right? Right? It's not, hey, this thing that you did is not good, Because it does not honor God. Versus you are evil and wicked and why would God love you? Because look at what you did. Look at how you disobeyed. Right, might quote scripture to you, 
but you are wicked and God does not love you. That's not, that's not Jesus. That's Satan. So how do we conquer that? By the blood of the lamb and the word of God. Jesus has already overcome. You can, you can go against me, right? I, I, was, uh, I listened to uh, A Mighty Fortress is Our God a couple of times this week, right? Uh, by Martin Luther, this hymn. And, and in one of those sections, right, he says, one little word will fell him. He's talking about Satan. And there's debate on what he means by this, but there is a quote from Luther where he talks about the word is liar. Just call him a liar, right? Like, because the reality is you can just tell Satan, yeah, I know I messed up. I know I sinned, right? And this is a paraphrase of Luther's quote, but he says, whenever uh, Satan throws your sin in, in your face, you say, yeah, what of it? I know one who died for that. You're a liar, right? This is the reality of what we have in God's word to go against Satan. But to know that, we actually need to know God's word, right? We need to know the fullness of God's word so that we can recognize the strategies of the devil. They're all the same, right? He seeks to kill and destroy, try and make you feel like garbage and make you feel like God doesn't love you, right? That's it. That's his strategy. It's really simple. But you know what? It works all the time on us because it works against us. It works against our own flesh and works to confirm the the fears that we already have. And so we need to counter that by knowing all of God's word, which says, I love you and I love you so much, I'm gonna send my son to die for you. That's how much I love you. It's also gonna help us conquer the world. Uh, Mark 3, 23 through 27 this section, Jesus has just cast out a demon and Jesus called them. Uh, and uh, so he cast out this demon, right? And the religious leaders come around and they're like, that man is possessed by Satan. He clearly, like he's casting out demons by the power of the devil. And Jesus called them over and responded with an illustration. He says, how can Satan cast out Satan? He asked, a kingdom divided by civil war will collapse. Similar, similarly, a family splintered by feuding will fall apart. And if Satan is divided and fights against himself, how can he stand? He would never survive. Let me illustrate this further. Who is powerful enough to enter the house of a strong man and plunder his goods? Only someone even stronger, someone who could tie him up and then plunder his house. In the midst of this, this is what Jesus is saying, right? First of all, he's saying, I'm not casting out Satan by Satan. That doesn't make any sense, right? Just showing that the religious leaders are just trying to get at Jesus no matter how how they can But the second thing that he's saying is they just saw a demon get cast out by Jesus. What did he say? The only way that you can plunder a strong man's house is to tie up the strong man. Jesus says, I tied him up. It's done. He has no power. He has no ultimate power, right? We've been talking about this kind of throughout this whole section, right? That Jesus or that Paul is instructing us to be equipped for battle against Satan and all evil in the world, right? But part of that battle is recognizing that Satan has no ultimate authority over you. He's been defeated. He's been defeated decisively at the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus has tied up the strong man. Now he gets to plunder his house. He gets to plunder his house. 
Colossians 1 describes this, right? He says, For he has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness, kingdom of Satan in the world, and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son who purchased our freedom and forgave our sins. Jesus has already conquered. And so we get to go into the world today knowing that Jesus has already overcome the world, right? That's what he says. You will face trouble. You will face trial. But I have overcome the world. You can't lose in the end. You cannot lose. You may lose your life, but you cannot lose your soul. I have done everything necessary for salvation. I have overcome. Now, here's the other thing about this. If Jesus has tied up the strong man, guess who else gets to plunder his house? Us. Who's in his house? All those in the world who don't know Jesus. And we get to go and to rescue them. We get to go and be used by God to rescue them. To go and declare to them, you don't need to stay in the kingdom of darkness. The kingdom of the beloved son is here. Come, be a part of it. How do we do this? Well, Romans tells us, Romans 10, 17, faith comes from hearing, that is hearing the good news about Christ, hearing the word of God. The sword of the spirit, the word of God is the offensive weapon of God against the kingdom of darkness. Now, when when the scriptures use the phrase word of God, right? Certainly we assume instantly it means the Bible, right? Because that's what we describe the Bible as, the word of God, which it is, absolutely. And yet throughout the book of Acts, right? We're talking about when it, when it says the word of God increased and moved, right, and went out. We're talking about the preached message of the gospel. So there's a sense in which we have the authoritative, right, determined word of God here, right? Nothing we say, nothing I say that contradicts with this can be considered what God is trying to tell you, right? This is the authoritative word of God delivered to us. And yet also, We get to deliver God's word, not just me, but all of you, as you preach the gospel to the world. Faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of God. You get to go with the very sword of the spirit into the kingdom of darkness, but the strong man's already tied up, right? Imagine, remember when David conquers Goliath? Remember, Israel is like cowering in the corner because Goliath is this huge giant. We don't, want to, we don't know what to do with him. And David is an unlikely hero that kills the giant. The point of that story is not to say, hey, you guys go kill your giants. The point of that story is to say, you can't kill the giant, but God will send his special messenger to kill him, Jesus. But you know what the Israelites did after Goliath was killed? They won that battle. They went out and won the battle right? Because the strong man is gone. The strong man is gone. Why do we fear speaking God's word in the world? The kingdom of darkness is over. It's It's just on its way out. It's dying out, right? It has been defeated decisively. We now have the sword of the spirit to go out and declare God's word and rescue those trapped in darkness to plunder his house. 2 Corinthians 
10, 4 and 5 say this, we use God's mighty weapons, not worldly weapons, to knock down the strongholds of human reasoning and to destroy false arguments. We destroy every proud obstacle that keeps people from knowing God. We capture their rebellious thoughts and teach them to obey Christ. Oh, that we would be defined by God's word in this way. How often is the church known for using God's word in this way? Or are we known for all sorts of other fights? All sorts of other fighting. All sorts of other strong arguments that we try and use. All sorts of other weapons we try and use to convince the world that we're right. Rather than simply cling to God's word and declare God's word to others in love. Right? The reality is, this means that we can come in humility to love other people. Because guess what? We were once a part of the kingdom of darkness. It's not like we were like, hey, I found this awesome kingdom and I established it. Come join me. No, you were rescued. Someone came and told you the good news of Jesus and you were rescued from darkness. Now you get to go back into the world and say, come with me. I've been rescued. Let's go to the kingdom of God's beloved son. This is why we talk about Jesus all the time. It's why it's not just like, hey, the gospel is this message of salvation that you hear once, you pray a prayer, you experience something, you, you get forgiven by Jesus, and then we never talk about it again and we go on to other things. No, this is the thing. It's the only thing. It's it. Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of this good news about Christ. It is the power of God at work, saving everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Gentile. Here's the thing. There's lots of talk and conversation around the difficulty of sharing the gospel in this part of the world because of secularization and moving away from these things. Those are really good conversations. We ought to have those, right? We want to communicate in a language that people understand. Absolutely. We want to think through those things. But I think part of the problem is we just don't know God's word and share God's word, right? Like we actually think there are better weapons to actually go forward. We think there are better ways than what Jesus says will save. Everyone who believes, Jew and Gentile, everyone, by hearing God's word, right? We're so convinced that we need a new strategy. We haven't really tried the old strategy. Preach God's word. Declare it to people. Love people. Share life with them. Live radically with them. All of those things that we talked about as we walked through the book of Acts is because the word of God is going forth. Now, we're only going to be equipped to do those things if we battle against our sinful nature, the flesh. We will only be equipped and prepared with the sword of the spirit for battle against Satan in the world and our sinful nature, the flesh, when we first allow the spirit of God to take that sword to us first. The only way we can use the sword of the Spirit is if we allow God to use it on us. Hebrews 4, 12 through 13 says this, For the word of God is alive and powerful. It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God. Everything is naked and exposed before his eyes, and he is the one to whom we are accountable. 
In order for us to see the word of God go forth in power with the spirit of God, we need to first be formed by God's word. Right? That statement is really strong, right? God's word is powerful and it will expose everything about you. But you know what the very next thing is that the author of Hebrews says? So let's go to our high priest who has done this great thing for us. We can go to the throne of grace. When our hearts are exposed, what do we do with it? We don't run away from God. We run to God because Jesus has already forgiven us. If we want to see God's kingdom grow in power, you first have to open your heart to God's word. It's not going to happen if we're not willing to open our own hearts to God's word and be corrected. Be corrected. It needs to humble us and show us where we've missed it. And it should lead us to repentance and to gentleness and humility, right? What's what's crazy about the, the irony of this passage, right, is you are being equipped with armor and Paul's using this military language and he's saying you're gonna take the sword of the spirit so that you can be like Jesus who says, put down your sword and kill me instead. The irony is it is going to lead us not into boastful, proud, violent, aggressive behavior in the world, but to humble, gentle, Jesus-like love for the world. When we go into the world to plunder the strong house, or to plunder the house of Satan, the kingdom of darkness, we don't do it walking in, kicking down doors, right? We do it by walking alongside people giving hugs, giving grace, giving gentleness, and giving Jesus. We need to be formed or shaped by God's word in order for this to be true. Because the reality is, we're all not like that, right? Some of us are maybe a little bit more gentle than others naturally, right? But none of us are like that with our enemies, right? If you want to know what someone's character is like, put them in a room with someone they don't like and see what happens, right? Because what Jesus says is we're to love that person. He says, oh, you welcome your friends? Good job. Everyone does that, right? No, no, no. The mark of the Christian is to welcome our enemies. That's, that's too much. That's hard. I can't do that unless I am formed by God's word. Unless I am shaped by God's word. You see why Dulling ourselves with entertainment is a false weapon to win the world because it's not going to shape us like that. It is shaping us, but not like that. We need to be shaped. We need to love God's word. We need to read God's word. We need to contemplate God's word. We need to listen to it. We need to let it consume our thoughts. We need to get it in our head and in our heart. A few ideas for you. First, I have found it very helpful to listen to the scriptures. So there's an awesome, uh, we, we preach here from the NLT, which is a great translation, very readable, understandable. There's an awesome group called Streetlights that reads, uh, they have a spoken word artists read the scriptures uh, with some hip hop beats in the background. It's awesome. It's so great. And they have the whole New Testament, I believe, and large portions of the Old Testament done already, and they continue to do more. So Streetlights, look it up. It's free. You can find it online play it. Um, It's super helpful. 
especially if you are a, a auditory learner, right? If you listen and learn that way, listen to God's word, right? Don't feel like, man, I, I'm just not a good reader. That, well, so change. Try and figure out a way to get more scripture in your head. Change your, your method of getting the scripture in your head. Don't feel bad about it. Just change your method to get it in your head and in your heart. God has created us all differently. We learn differently. Read the scriptures. Journal, pray, meditate. Just read chunks of scripture. Just get it in your heart. Learn about the scriptures. Uh, Another great resource on uh, YouTube is the Bible Project. Um, It's a great resource that will teach you about God's word and the context so that you can understand what God is teaching you. Great videos, short videos. Listen to those. It's a great way to do it. Here on Sunday mornings, obviously, we want to teach God's word. You want to get good books that teach you how to read God's word. Um, Let me recommend one for you. It's called How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. Um, It's going to go give you the genres of scripture, how to understand. Like when I'm reading the prophets, that sounds really weird and I don't know what to do with that. They'll help you, right? It's a great book by Gordon Fee and uh, Douglas Stewart, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. Um, another book by Vaughn Roberts called God's Big Picture. Um, this will give you a big overview of the scriptures. Uh, I wish I had my copy of it. It's real thin. Actually, I don't know where my copy of it is. One of you might have it. If you're listening online or you check the bottom of the book and if it says from the library of the Hollowells, you know, mail it back to me or, or give it to me. No shame, no shame. Uh, but I'm missing my copy. Um, But it's a great book, and it will give you an overview of the whole story of the Scripture so that you can understand, hey, how do I jump into the Scriptures to learn what God's Word is teaching me? We need to memorize the Scriptures and pray the Scriptures. If you want to know how to pray, open the Psalms and pray through a Psalm a day. It will help you to internalize God's Word. Now, all of this is hard. Why do we continue to do it? Well, in John 6, Jesus has been teaching, and this is where he says, those who don't eat of my flesh or drink from my blood have no part of me. And everyone's like, okay, we thought we were coming out here for some teaching and a meal, but this is weird. We're all leaving. And Jesus turns to his disciples and says, do you guys want to leave too? And Peter replies, Lord, to whom would we go? You have the words of eternal life. Where else are we going to go? Where else, where else do we go? When you face the brokenness of the world, where are you going to turn? Have you found any other place that gives the words of eternal life? Go to the word. Go to the word. And it's not just about knowing the words of the Bible, but knowing the word himself. Remember, we're in Advent. John 1, 1 through 14 says this. In the beginning, the word already existed. The word was with God and the word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him and nothing was created except through him. The word gave life to everything that was created and his life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness can never extinguish it. What John is saying in this is, He's trying to make it clear, as clear as possible. The word of God existed before all time and by it, God created everything. By him, God created everything. Including, and not like, 
oh, the, he was the first creation of this. No, 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 he's saying it in any way possible. Nothing was created except through him, meaning he existed forever, right? He's trying to say as clearly as possible, he has always existed. God sent a man, John the Baptist, to tell about the light so that everyone might believe of his testimony. John himself was not the light. He was simply a witness to tell about the light. The one who is the true, true light, who gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He came into the very world he created, but the world didn't recognize him. He came to his own people, and even they rejected him. But to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. They are reborn not with a physical birth resulting from human passion or plan, but a birth that comes from God. So the word became human and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. When Paul says, take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, what he's saying to you is take the triune God with you because the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. It's not just that we have God's word. God has spoken something and we're to listen to it and respond to it. No, that word came near to us. It's not far off. Came near to us to live among us. The speaking authority of God, the creative act of God, the sustaining voice of God did not remain distant, but came near and took on flesh, dwelt among us, and then went to a cross for us died in the place that you and I should have died and then rose from the dead so, and then he and the Father sent the Spirit to live in us so that we would have God's Word in us forever. Why do we love God's Word? Why do we cling to God's Word? Why do we give God's Word? Why do we proclaim? Why do we be formed by? Why do we cling to and long for God's Word? Because we get Jesus. That's why. We teach our children, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. This is why we love the Bible, because it tells us the best news ever. Jesus loves you. That's the word of God that will transform the world. It's not a book at the center of our story, but it's a person whom God has revealed by his spirit through his word. And that's what Advent is all about. That's what Christmas is all about, that God has come to dwell among us. So we need to cling to this truth and give it away ourselves. This is the truth of God that we cling to. Revelation 12, 11, And they defeated him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives so much that they were afraid to die. The only way we're going to be like that is to cling to God's word together. Let's pray together. Father, we do come to you. We need you. There's no way that we can do this on our own. We need your spirit to be at work, to make the word of God dwell in us richly. God, we want to be filled with your spirit and we want to fill this city with your word. Lord, you have defeated Satan. You have defeated evil. You have conquered all Lord, you have overcome the world, and so we now submit to you, God, that we will go. Even if it costs us our lives, we will go and take your word, because Jesus, you are worth it. Jesus, transform us, we pray, and gain all glory and honor.
In Christ's name, amen.